This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. And for this show, I'm going to hand over the mic to second year student, right? Yes. Okay. Second year student. <laughs> Jesse White. Jesse, it's Migrant Health Week here at the Carver College of Medicine. Uh, why did you want to talk about that on the show? Well, first off, thank you, Dave, for inviting me for this. Uh, yeah, so... You invited yourself. Well, you said to me, Dave, I want to do this. So technically, I s- yes, I made the initiative, but you still had to agree to it. So <laughs> there's a little bit of a symbiotic relationship there. Yeah, I am a generous man. <laughs> so yeah, uh, my name is Jesse White. I wanted to be able to do this because, again, this is Migrant Health Week here at the Carver College of Medicine being hosted by the Student Physicians for Human Rights group. Um, And I thought it was very important to be able to kind of discuss what we're uh, talking about today because we have a specific population within our country that oftentimes can be very overlooked, though it is, um, it might be a minority, but it's definitely a populist minority. And so I thought it would be good to be able to kind of compare and contrast just what sort of um, differences or similarities we might be able to see when we provide care for this population. So um, I just wanted to be able to have a chance to uh, discuss that with a few of my colleagues today. So who are they? Yes. So I sitting, sense a presence in the room. You are correct. So sitting directly to my right is Peg Bushka, who um, is a physician's assistant and has worked with uh, migrant health populations for many years. Um, Peg, can you go ahead and say hello to everybody? Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming along. And additionally, I have a fellow second-year medical student who has also spent uh, the past summer working with a company that works with migrant health populations. Her name is Erin Steele. Erin, go ahead and say what's up. Hi, it's good to be here. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Well, I guess without further ado, uh, we might as well go ahead and jump into this. Uh, And so... Uh, you ladies, I will just kind of open this up to you first. Um, you have worked with uh, maybe similar or different people, but I just kind of want you to be able to talk about the sort of patient that you worked with when it comes to this specific population, this migrant population. Kind of tell me what exactly um, the kind of life and the kind of mindset that this patient comes with and uh, elaborate on maybe some of the um the, the kinds of, of uh, health um, inequalities or specifically diseases that they might be kind of dealing with. So, Peg, I'll kind of open up to you first. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I, I have um, about three profiles of folks that, that I've worked with in this community. Um, one group are actually families who come up from Texas for several months out of the year, and they work at uh, Monsanto, and... So they're a, a huge group of people, and they're housed in very, very basic, um, it's kind of like quarters. Um, it's like a very 
rundown hotel, motel kind of place, um, clean and so forth, but really crowded, pretty crowded conditions. They, um, you know, the, the part that I love is that it's, it's pretty much like a family practice setting. It's a primary care um, community. We, we have a mobile clinic where we go out to the place where they're working. We go in the evenings so that we can catch them after work. And we set up um, in the laundry room or in their cafeteria or sometimes in different settings. We're in a church basement or a library or a school. Um, it's, it's basic. It's very basic. Not <laughs> ideal, maybe. <laughs> Not ideal, but um, it has its benefits. One sure. uh, summer evening this summer, we had problems with the internet inside the building and so we had to move outside into kind of a storage shed and um, I basically had a my clinic outside which was kind of enjoyable um, but we um, th- so basically the families are there and so we see the workers which age teen to my oldest patient this summer was 80 um, and then also their families. So anything from a couple week old baby um, all the way to, you know, um, the teen years for the kids. So we see a lot of well child checks, sports physicals. The, some of the kids stay into the fall and work, I mean, uh, go to school at, at a local school. So we're doing their sports physicals. Um, we um, often see several members of the family um, the same evening and, and, they tend to come together and um, sometimes it's quite loud in the waiting room um, with kids running around and washer and dryer going and so forth. (laughs) A little Um, less privacy for everybody at that point. (laughs) Yeah, although the the noise gives you a little privacy in the room, which which we try to set up a fairly private space with um, room dividers. Um, But one evening this summer, actually, a, a few teenage guys set up a haircutting operation in the waiting room after we were when we were closing up so that was pretty fun Man. some cool music going on <laughs> where was i when that happened i know sorry that was after you left i think <laughs> um so anyway that's one group of folks um the other group is and those are all um i find i i feel this is important that we i that we're talking about different um statuses of citizenship, et cetera, because it has a lot to do with how people are treated and access they have. Um, so these folks are all, um, quote, legal, mm-hmm. um, and they're brought up by the company, but they aren't allowed to work anywhere else during that period of time. Mm. Um, the other group of folks that we see are up here for about five to six weeks. They're also on a similar, like a work visa kind of thing. They're from Mexico. And they're all men, and they are housed in a um, huge pole building. And there's just a whole bunch of bunk beds, and it's um, big fans. There's up to um, like 500 people in that building. Very, very basic. They're here just to make money for that five to six weeks. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they're very hardy individuals and healthy mm-hmm. and tend to um, not really like to take medication. They mm-hmm. don't, some of them don't even know what ibuprofen is, which mm-hmm. is quite refreshing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and they're open to, you know, non-pharmacologic measures and, um, and they're generally, you know, really hardy. Uh, but 
they also have genetic things that, you know, no matter how they take care of themselves, they still have hypolipidemia or di- diabetes, which mm-hmm. tends to go with their ethnicity. All mm-hmm. the folks I were, I'm talking about are Latino. The last group um, that we work with are um, folks that live here um, and have lived here for many years and are undocumented, um, working on big farms like dairy operations, um, animal confinement operations, um, and they're raising their families. Most of their kids are documented because they were lived, they grew up in the, I mean, they were born in the States. So a lot of times these parents are kind of just giving up their lives to to have their kids survive. You Mm -hmm. know, they're sort of functioning under the radar so that their um, kids can thrive and their kids do thrive. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're also um, working really hard, um, you know, sometimes in not very great conditions. And also um, they're under this chronic stress and fear of being found out and losing, you know, their livelihood, maybe being deported. Um, their kids literally go to school every day recently and are worried about whether their family, their parents are going to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a huge chronic stressor that affects physical and mental health, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, am I talking too much? No, you're, you, <laughs> that, was, that was very detailed. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, you really gave that sort of, uh, not only did you just talk about specifically what sort of diseases that they might have been dealing with or just chronic issues, but you really helped us understand like these people are regular human beings that in all honesty just want the best not only for themselves but for their family yeah i mean i i find their dedication to family to be like really refreshing that's one of the things i really love about the population and Mm -hmm. and i can say i think in years of working with these this particular population and visiting Latino countries that the, you know, focus on family is, is, is really strong and people do a lot to keep, you know, their family going Absolutely. and try to provide the best things they can for them. Absolutely. Um, so one thing I will say is, um, you know, Aaron, I know that you kind of worked with uh, the same sort of population that Peg did over this summer. Um, I'm just kind of curious, did you, uh, did you see these same sorts of things in terms of the sort of profile that the the patients tended to come in with and maybe your perspective on some of these patients. Yeah, well, um, it definitely differed uh, by the population, kind of what people were presenting with, what they were um, bringing to the table, where they were coming from, their history. I mean, um, they were all, most of them were um, Latino, yeah, it was a Latino population, but um, like the people at Monsanto, they were coming in and a lot of them, I mean, it was a wide age range, but, you know, some a lot of the problems we were seeing were chronic health issues. And as Peg was saying before, at Conesville, you know, they're hardier men. Um, a lot of times they'd be coming in just for uh, more acute complaints like rashes or um, muscle pain and whatnot. Um, and so it was uh, very different and different living conditions as well. So it was interesting because, you know, similar kind of type of population, but very different backgrounds. And that uh, kind of changed what kind of health problems we saw associated with them. The the people you worked with, that's right here in Iowa, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. Within, I would all be within an hour of Iowa City. Mm-hmm. So this isn't like you had to travel anywhere. I mean, right here in our we, backyard. Actually, some, some of these folks are in Northeast Iowa. We go up to, you know, a range of about two and a half hours from Iowa City. But mm-hmm. most of the patients we see are within 
close close by yep yep so um and you know i will just quickly add my little tidbit so i will um over this past summer i was actually blessed enough to go down to phoenix arizona for about eight weeks and uh i worked with a very similar population that you guys are describing um a lot less agriculturally based a lot more blue collar work um say just we're either working for um just uh some some companies say even just doing something simple as like street cleaning and uh roofing and a lot of just hard physical labor um and i will say that i saw in terms of health profile i saw very similar things that you guys did um i did note that i'd say probably about 90 percent of the people that we had coming into our clinic were undocumented immigrants um, coming across the border specifically to work and um, I'd say of those uh, of those immigrants I would say probably about 70 to 80 percent of them were dealing with diabetes um, that was one thing that I noted that was very uh, prevalent in that population um, I, I had a specific day where uh, my job was essentially enter in information about um, what sort of medications we were giving out that day and on a it was it was just on a, a random Tuesday, but on that day alone we saw close to about a hundred patients, and I would say that day alone we had ninety of them having some issue with diabetes. And um, our organization as well was in charge of giving them the medications, and I estimated uh, I believe that specific day we gave out sixty six hundred tablets of metformin alone. And I just, that just blew my mind. I was like, I didn't even realize you could uh, like have 6,600 tablets of metformin <laughs> at one time. Like, I didn't even think that was possible. That's a treatment for diabetes. Yes, yeah. exactly. Is this type, is this type one or type two diabetes? Mm -hmm. Mainly, mainly type two. Um, uh, that the, Almost my, always, yeah. Yes. Uh, specifically with the Hispanic and Latinos, it's very prevalent in that population. And this is the kind of diabetes that one is that the acqu you acquire, acquired yes you acquire it yeah. um but it is also very much a genetic component to right, it right, as right. well so um you know it was just it was fascinating to me that i mean these people uh you know they all were coming in with so many similar issues that uh, for a while it almost just kind of felt like we uh you know we were just a uh that's basically what our clinic was yeah. there for um so i just it was uh, that specific day struck me as just kind of you know what this population does have to go through so i'm, I'm curious um the, the population that you were serving uh were they aware of their health problem before coming into the clinic and were they they're seeking medication or was that something like did you do screenings for them yeah so most of the patients that we saw uh, I, I will give a little background so the organization i worked with is a nonprofit that specifically went out to different suburbs within phoenix and um, provided essentially primary care for these patients that either couldn't afford going to a hospital or um, did not have insurance. So um, most of these people at this point were very well, um, or they understood the organization's purpose. And so they treated us very much like their primary care provider. Um, they oftentimes understood what exactly um, they, uh, they were dealing with but um, I will say that a lot of times they saw the medications we gave them as the um, end-all be-all, if you would, or they saw that as that would eventually cure them of whatever issue they were having. But it was very difficult for to be able to um, kind of 
I don't want to say implement, but to be able to uh, come up with an assessment plan that they fully understood. Um, the idea that not only is can this be helped by medication, but there's also lifestyle choices that um, affect uh, affect type two diabetes, hypertension, um, hyperlipidemia, all of those things. And um, like I can even pro I'll provide you another example. There was a uh, an elderly woman that came into the clinic and um, she uh, had a history of type two diabetes. And we I talked to her about you know what are some of the foods that you're eating. Um, and, uh, for those, for type two diabetes, you want to avoid carbs as much as possible, or at least have a very limited amount. Um, and I asked her, I said, you know, what's the sort of foods that you're eating? And she said, oh, I often eat tortillas. I said, okay, how many of those do you eat? And she told me four. And I said, okay, is that four a day? She said, no, four a meal. <laughs> and, um, I mean, tortillas themselves are probably some of the most dense types of food that you can use or eat um, that come with uh, with carbs. And so, you know, this is somebody that has been dealing with type 2 diabetes for well over 30 years. And, you know, and still we had to be able to educate and say, you know, tortillas are, you have to really monitor how many of those you eat and like work on that. So, you know, to answer your question, Aaron, uh, the, the patients, they they understood they had issues but there was definitely a little bit of a of a misunderstanding when it came to how do we work on this you know i think one of the things that's been proven in studies is that when folks eat their typical diet in central south america they probably have much less trouble with diabetes than when they move to the states mm -hmm and change to, um, you know, soda is one of the things that's hugely an issue for us with folks and um, Gatorade mm -hmm. and sugared drinks of any kind, which some, a lot of times is is provided by the company that they work for out in the fields. And that's, you know, what they have access to rather, rather than pure water. Mm -hmm. They also um, are used to not drinking their water, so they don't drink tap water. Mm -hmm. So they buy water, you know, which is, I think, you know, a waste on many levels mm -hmm. myself. But mm -hmm. um, I try to convince them you can drink the tap water. You know, it's okay here in Iowa. Um, there must also be a problem because they're spending their money exactly. that they're earning on the, that water. Yeah. And so I, they can't buy other foods. So that when are I tell healthy. people to drink pure water instead of the Gatorade or the Kool Aid that they're being provided, you know, it's an extra cost for them. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I've uh, I've done a little bit of research on this in the past. If I remember correctly, at this moment in in Mexico specifically, uh, a three liter bottle of Coke costs less yes, than right. twenty ounces of bottled water. Mm. So yeah. it's it's our imports. Yeah. That ha I mean, it's like Western food stuff that is incorporated into their diet that mm -hmm. is making them sicker. Yep. Um, yeah, the other thing about diet in that way that is dental care, yep. you know, which soda is a huge part of that and the sugar drinks and people just, that's one area of awareness that's really lacking, I think, across the board in poor communities in the States because no access is available for care. But, um, you know, the chronic stressor of poor dental care on our bodies 
is another issue, especially in association with all these other chronic conditions. Mm-hmm. So did you have people there to provide dental care or we, like we dentists? Do and... have, we do have some limited, yeah. but more, more really uh, geared toward kids. Mm. And we have some funds that we can um, put toward covering visits to the university hospital. But it's also difficult to get folks to follow up on... Um, Referrals when we send someone for a badly needed, you know, referral, unless they're having a lot of pain or something, it's really difficult for them to justify taking off work yeah. because they don't get paid, and they're that's that's really hard to transportation and all that kind of stuff. We provide, we help provide oh, transportation, but um, it's it's usually the taking off work part. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Aaron, did you at all see uh, these sort of same sort of issues? This idea of like um, the the patient understands maybe what they have but is hey maybe has some sort of boundary keeping them from trying to have more of a uh, holistic treatment plan yeah well i think some of the problems that um i saw were that people you know maybe we do a screening procedure and somebody would find out maybe they were hypertensive and we put them on medications and they'd be taking them and they'd be feeling fine and then when they feel fine they think oh well i don't need to take this anymore because i i feel perfectly healthy um, they come in for a follow-up visit a couple weeks later and their blood pressure is out of control and they say, oh, well, I'm, you know, I feel, I feel fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they, uh, at times they just don't know what, um, the consequences of that are for their future health. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I definitely can attest to that. This, the, the idea that, you know, when, when they come in to see a physician, there was a lot more of an idea of like, I only come to the physician when I don't feel well, mm-hmm. you know, and type 2 diabetes, hypertension, those sort of chronic issues, they don't necessarily make you, you know, feel like you need to need to go to sleep for the next, you know, 24 hours to try to try to shake it off, you know. It is just, you know, they would rather work and be able to make that money for their family uh, than have to, uh, you know, take the time out of their day to specifically set up this appointment and and possibly cost themselves, you know, however much, however much money they might make then that day. So there's definitely that sort of issue of like, which is, you know, in their mind, what's the greater evil. Um, so, um, one, one of the things that I definitely noticed over my summer is that there was definitely a, uh, a difference in terms of the settings that you can, um, that you can see when working with this population, um, specifically like the work environment, the the patient rooms, that sort of thing. So, um, to both of you, you know, Aaron, I'll let you I'll let you take this first. Um, you know, maybe what was like the one like maybe really stark difference that you saw, say, um, going into a to a hospital here at the at the University of Iowa versus um, the clinic that you worked at over the summer, and kind of just maybe something that really stuck out to you as as just. Um, like very different either in mindset or in atmosphere kind of take however you will um i i guess just the the flow was a bit different than you'd see in a you know in a normal clinic um just because we have to get through so many patients you know and uh, we have so many workers there we set up different stations and some people will be doing intake you know and some people will be doing vitals others will be doing labs and it's kind of a little bit of a train to get back to the provider mm-hmm. um and a lot of times we get slowed down and backed up and um patients have to wait there for a decent amount of time and i think that's frustrating at times um not that it's you know 
a lot fast. I mean, it is faster in the hospital, mm-hmm. but you know, sometimes you are around like waiting around for a bit. But mm-hmm. um, I just felt that it was a little bit more excessive out in the field. But it was almost something that um, I don't know how we would get around that. I mm-hmm. guess it sounds a bit like an assembly line kind of process. It definitely you? was. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Go right. to one station, then maybe the other station's full, so they'd have to wait for a little bit, and then we call their name, they come back, mm-hmm. we take their vitals, maybe labs are full, so they wait a little bit. Um, but that was just what worked best for the clinic. And uh, it, and Peg, what would you, I mean, you have a, a lot more experience in terms of just working in a, in a medical setting than us currently. So um, is there something that really always sticks out to you whenever you work with the migrant population versus maybe uh, when you work with um, people in just a regular hospital or clinical setting? As far as the physical setting, um, one of the things is that, you know, going to where people live is they really appreciate it Mm -hmm. and it increases um, our likelihood of reaching them. Uh, But of course we do put up with some inconvenience in, um, lack of privacy that's probably my biggest one and um we try to make it you know so somewhat of a private space but we can't you know undress have people undress and actually do a really thorough exam which i miss that opportunity mm-hmm. um and sometimes it really affects my ability to you know do a good um get good get a good assessment mm-hmm. um we definitely have major limitations on the kinds of studies we can do, the tests we can do to help with the diagnosis. Um, I rely a lot more on my clinical judgment than mm-hmm. I probably do. And um, you asked a question at one point in, in the preface here about pure medicine, I think, mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like um, I do rely on, you know, my history a lot. And mm-hmm. I I like that because I feel like that's a big, big part of how I learn. And I, I try to listen a lot to what the patients have to say. Mm-hmm. Some of that's limited at times with my Spanish and my limitations because I'm not a native speaker, but I try to work on keeping up as much as I can to be um, responsible f- to the patient as far as being able to communicate with them. And if I can't, like last night, um, the last patient I saw, which was probably about 10, 15 um, was also a guy who just spoke really, really fast mm-hmm. in Spanish. And honestly, after about nine o- night, I don't, my Spanish goes way back down. <laughs> hey, my English at nine o'clock at night goes way <laughs> down too. Oh, so. Really? Yes. <laughs> um, but anyway, he, I called in, um, and it was about like just being, you know, chest pain, not chest pain, but, um, shortness of breath on exertion, which was big deal right mm-hmm. I, I want to get this right mm-hmm. so I called in um, one of the um, health aides who's a native speaker and asked for her to help me because I really wanted to get it right and you know make sure I didn't miss details and so we always have someone like that and sometimes um, maybe a word that folks are using that I'm not familiar with um, is like colloquial in Mexico or something and and you know one of the native speakers will know that so that's that's really helpful and I try to be respectful and responsible about that but you know the language issue is certainly um, an extra layer of barrier Mm -hmm. and then of course the cultural difference I didn't grow up in that culture so you know I'm always trying to learn more and be respectful yep 
Um, I, I will. Uh, I can absolutely attest to that last uh, the statement that you made. The idea of you know, I I will be honest. I grew up most of my life in rural Iowa. Um, I took Spanish for four years in high school. I did not take it in undergrad, and yet I found myself over the summer working with patients that hardly spoke English. And you know, there is it's one of those things where you know I was I that was one thing I was so worried about was how does my background in their culture how is that going to is that going to be able to, how much will that hinder me to be able to actually take care of this patient because in all honesty I have I have no idea what it's like to to grow up in their shoes uh, I mean you could say that technically for anybody but their specific you know they're they're where they're from really matters to them um you know and I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it doesn't happen say within the United States but family you mentioned this earlier family is extremely important to this population to the point where oftentimes it is their their number one goal is to make sure that their family is provided for not only was the language itself you know difficult to be able to overcome thankfully I had interpreters to be able to actually help me with that but it was uh, I mean when when somebody came to the clinic to be checked on it wasn't usually just the individual it was almost their entire family mm-hmm. so you have say if a a 35 year old woman uh, comes in to um, to to be uh, to be looked at then I've we usually have the husband the the three or four kids the grandparents to be able to watch the kids and sometimes even just a friend just to kind of entertain the patient um i mean we had a whole whole host of of people that were coming to this little itty bitty table in the middle of a gymnasium you know and so it's familiar yes uh that was uh i just i absolutely was in awe of you know the amount of people that were a part of this plan in a sense so you know that's you, family medicine exactly it i mean really truly is. i mean it's it's it, with the emphasis on family i mean that was very uh interesting to me just because i didn't you know i don't usually see that when it comes to people that you know within iowa or even the united states in general i don't feel like that's necessarily that's not how americans do medicine no you, you go with maybe with your wife or your or your daughter, or your maybe. son, or whatever, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I don't bring my wife to my <laughs> to my appointments. I mean, exactly. it's just not what I do. Yeah, I just so that struck me as just um, when I worked with them, just to see how much emphasis that they had on making this uh, a, a family plan as opposed to just an individualized treatment plan. One of the things that I noticed um, last night. Um, was that we had a couple of um, a couple of things that I noticed. One of them was that we had some students um, who, because of sort of the casual, they weren't medical students actually, but they were sp- Spanish language students. And because of the um, kind of relaxed nature of our setting, um, I felt like there was a little bit of a disrespect for. Mm. Um, the fact that this is a clinic setting, you know, we people are here to be seen by uh, our healthcare people, and it's you know sometimes this sort of casual look of oh it's sort of a party or whatever is is, um, and I talked to him about it and stuff, but um, 
you know, this just because there's a casual setting, it doesn't mean that this isn't real business here that we're doing and or that there's clothes dryers going, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it must be other, hard to resist that sort of Yeah, it is a little bit, but, but yeah. I try to, I'm a little harsh about that, aren't I, Erin? <laughs> I, I try to be pretty... Did you have to give the smack down to Aaron? It's really true. No, not to Aaron. <laughs> I was well behaved. <laughs> but I don't like a lot of, to include a lot of people in our, you know, exam room, which is loosely named. But, but you know, we try to make it a, a real visit. You know, it, they deserve that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that happened last night that was interesting was um, not giving any, like, specifics so you can identify patients, but... A woman that I've seen for some time um, over a period of a few years and um, was dealing with her husband being unfaithful to her and a lot of deception and so forth. And she was, I was treating her for depression, but also trying to encourage her to leave this person. She eventually did. Um, But last night they both were sitting in the waiting area like far apart from each other because he apparently has started coming back to work here, unfortunately, because she has to sit in the waiting room with him and she didn't. Mm-hmm. Neither of them were speaking to each other. They were like on their phones, you know, looking at their phone. <laughs> Luckily they had something, but, um, <laughs> you know, just the, it's reality. It's mm-hmm. like real life. You know, there's, there's issues that people deal with mm-hmm. of broken families or whatever you would call that as well as, and then having to, kind of coexist you know because it is a small community yep. and everybody knows everybody else's yeah. business you say in an ordinary circumstance for americans you know you you go to the doctor's office pretty much any day of the week but if you're there just on that one occasion chances are two people who don't like each other yeah, are going right. to meet up right yeah we, we put a lot of emphasis on service learning here at the carver college of medicine and that's important i think the only way that you can eventually become an advocate for someone is to get to know them okay. and get to know the population. Yeah. So I think uh, this summer was really enlightening for me because I was not very well informed on yeah. migrant farm worker health uh, prior to um, starting my training at Proteus. Yeah, I, I can also attest to that. Uh, you know, this was, I mean, this is a very specialized com- or population in terms of just uh, what we might be exposed to here. But... This was, I felt, I, if if I could, like, be able to make a sort of declaration within the Carver College of Medicine, I think that every student that comes through here should work with this sort of population. Maybe not necessarily migrant health, but some, some population that is underserved. Mm-hmm. Because I believe that ultimately, um, to be able to, kind of like Aaron said, to get to know... A, a, a different group of people that maybe you're just not unfortunately Iowa doesn't necessarily expose you to that very well um to be able to just draw upon that experience whenever you meet somebody new is invaluable in my opinion you know and that could for some people that say come from the city that could be just um you know coming from Chicago or Minneapolis or you know a, a much bigger area than here you know, that could be just something as simple as going to work out in the rural clinic over in Kelowna, you know, 20 miles east, which is just mainly farmers. And I honestly just feel that this sort of experience is is unlike anything else because you don't rely on um, all the technology that's available to you. You don't rely on 
your just natural skills. You have to adapt. And being able to adapt is honestly one of the, the, the priorities you need to be a physician or a physician's assistant. To be a healthcare worker, you have to be willing to adapt. So this wasn't necessarily like my opportunity to tinker with something that you know just just to scratch an itch or anything like that it was truly an experience to be able to say to myself you know i know how to to deal with situations that aren't ideal i totally agree with what you both said and and in my experience and and aaron you were you were a staff person i mean you were part of the team that was crucial and really great staff that we had this summer um and I think that's it, it, these settings also, I think, kind of break down some of the hierarchical barriers that we might have in maybe a tertiary care setting, yep. for example, yep. where there's so many learners um, that, you know, the M2s or the M1s are are way down on the list, maybe of, of and you so you get to do a lot of cool stuff in these settings. But it also really uh, is a service. I mean, you're obviously there because you care. You are probably bilingual, which is fabulous. You've probably had some experiences outside of the United States that puts you in that setting because you and you want to serve underserved populations. You know, so you're already coming self-selected, I think, to actually be really useful and effective. And patients feel that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, ultimately, if you can show that sort of empathy and uh, and the care, that's what the patient recognizes. Right, right. And there are definitely other, I, I know of some opportunities that you guys would have um, with the mobile clinic um, that does outreach in the Iowa City area mm-hmm. in Coralville and also um, the free medical clinic in Iowa City mm-hmm. incorporates um, students as well. In, and I think those... That was really crucial in my upbringing mm-hmm. as a medical person working in those settings. Absolutely. So, uh, Aaron, I, I wanted to hear about how maybe, I, I don't know your background in terms of working in a hospital setting specifically, but I, I just would like to be able to know how did, when you first stepped into the clinic, um, first day, first week, however you would, um, did was there something that you really had to be able to say, like just to adapt your skills? And I mean, I know we only at that point went through one year of medical school, but was there something that you really had to learn something on the fly to, to be able to, to work properly in the, in the setting? Um, I don't know so much on the fly, but there was a lot of details and a lot of information that we had to get from the patients and using the, um, electronic medical health record that we were using, which I wasn't familiar with, but just getting used to where we needed to put information was challenging. And then learning, um, I too, uh, I did take some Spanish in college, I know you are mentioning before, um, but I, I wasn't like some of the other health workers who majored in Spanish. Mm-hmm. I took a couple classes, you know, mm-hmm. and so that was a challenge that I faced as well, especially, um, so we, we did uh, depression screenings, um, and there are some questions that, you know, I would have trouble asking a native English speaker, you know, you have a way of wording things to try to make them not sound so harsh. Yep. And I think it was really hard because when you're speaking with a, a Spanish speaking patient, I didn't know how, like, 
how how do I change the way that I'm speaking Spanish so that I can convey that I, I you know, how I want to convey what I, you know, yes. I need to do. Can but, you give us an example? Can you think of an example at this distance? Oh, I mean, one of the questions was, you know, have, have you ever thought about killing yourself? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there are ways to try to make that sound a little bit better in English, but I, with my limited Spanish vocabulary, there weren't a lot of words for me to choose from, you know, and <laughs> Unfortunately, so I don't, it can come across as blunt. If you, you know, in English, sure. you're able to, you know, be able to smooth it out. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think to, you know, to, to some respect or to some degree, they um, understood that, you know, I'm not a native speaker and I don't intend to, if I'm saying it rudely, I'm not intending to do that, but um, it's still, it was a little bit uncomfortable getting used to that at first, but then you find out ways to mm-hmm. say certain things and then um, it just becomes kind of routine. Yep. yep. Did your patients ever giggle at your Spanish? <laughs> yes. <laughs> once, or, <laughs> once or twice, maybe 10 times, <laughs> but you know. I got a lot more puzzled looks usually. I would try something and they would look at me like, mm, "It's this is not computing with, with my with my native tongue." I'm like, "Well, I gave it a shot." Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I can, uh, in terms of just adaptations, I I know for me, uh, it was so I worked two years in the hospital before I came to medical school, and I got there and they don't have an electronic system, mm-hmm. uh, and everything was done on paper mm-hmm. charts. I had never. I would love that. I have never. I had never seen. I think a lot of doctors would like to. Yes. A lot of doctors and a lot of physicians. I had never. Go back I'm quite to, yeah. fond of the the, <laughs> the electronic chart. Yes, the electronic chart is what I u- am used to, and all of a sudden now having to write an actual note, a clinical note with a pen. With a pen, <laughs> a lot, a lot of cramps in my hand. I tell you what, um, but even something like that. I mean that is with a computer for me i'm more efficient with so now i had to learn how to be still efficient but be able to scribble out all the notes that i had and still be able to be uh talk to the patient and and get their what get what they needed in a timely manner so that was just like a it was like a, a minor hiccup but it was one of those things where i had never had to deal with that before so you know you just it after a while you got used to it but you know, at the beginning, I was like, man, this is, I might be able to see one patient in an hour or something like that. So. so I'm curious, were you the only clinic that they would generally go to or did they go to other, were there other clinics in the area? And you're mentioning having these paper charts. Do you scan them in anywhere or is that just for your um, so organization? In general, over a two week period, we had, I want to say six locations that we went to. Um, some we went to every week, some we went to every other week, just kind of depended on, on the, the location, but each location themselves had separate bins of paper charts, um, that they would just kind of keep there. But ultimately the only thing there, there was only a couple things that, that kind of maintained in terms of being able to transport around. We had the doctors oftentimes would do either three or four days. And then additionally, we had a giant RV that was um, part of of the organization that was not only host our patient uh, our patient bed or two patient beds that we had, um, but all of our medications, all the um, uh, pharmaceutical uh, scripts that you could write. Um, there was a place in the way in the back that you could even do say either uh, look for dental work or even um, do some uh, dermatologic interventions. And other than that, though, I mean, it was 
strictly location wherever we were at mm-hmm. they generally had all the supplies that we that we needed at that point um so the the locations themselves were very much um it was very a location dependent upon uh depend and so that would determine what exactly we had access to so I guess I was just wondering about like the transfer of information, like with the electronic medical record, it's so much easier to, you know, if a patient goes to a hospital that's Mm -hmm. using the same system, they can get access to their history and everything Mm -hmm. like that. And you're mentioning paper charts and I mean, do those ever get lost? Oh yes. All the time. Oh gosh. All the time they get lost. (laughs) And uh, there would be many instances where they would. Okay guys, we, we did this for years. (laughs) It went just fine. Really. really. Well, I I mean, the problem with transfer, especially with this population, there's no EHR, Mm -hmm. you know, in, I mean, in Texas when they're going back home back or in Mexico I mean there's no transfer of records on the on the computer or Mm -hmm. paper but um, I mean even in Iowa City there's no transfer from Mercy to to the university it's not like it's a great system of transferring records really I love it you guys are we're talking you're about cracking me up. It's like, age-related issues. Hey, but we use I'm, paper I'm back 61 <laughs> years old. Um, but I, I, anyway. You guys are like, what's wrong with the world where we can't type things into a screen? <laughs> we just don't know that world, But that, that does bring up a lot of um, stuff about the, the migrant population, though, as far as um, continuity of care, yes. you know, which is really, it, it's bad. Yes. <laughs> it's very bad, and we try to provide it as much as we can, and people you know I try to encourage people you know when you're in Texas um, you know go to the local community health clinic where you can pay you know a a sliding scale fee Mm -hmm. and we help them through the migrant clinic network to make those connections um, because they would have a lot more options you know to get Mm -hmm. more labs done that we need or um, you know imaging or whatever referrals maybe dental care maybe um, mental health you know st- stuff that we aren't very good at, at being able to provide um yeah, can i just quickly ask you how do you with in terms of the concept specifically of continuity care how do you deal with that personally with this population i mean you're already kind of going into the fact of the issues that you know it it, it causes uh in terms of just health outcomes and and general um stressors that might be involved but for you personally is there is there a way that you kind of manage or, 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 or reconcile that issue working with this population? Um, compared to where, where I worked in family practice at the university for many years um, and had, you know, like three generations of families that I saw over 15 years, it, it's completely different mm-hmm. because um, patients don't, these, the, the migrant help folks that I know are not used to continuity of care. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not used to um, having, you know, like a family doctor, end quotes, kind of kind of situation. So they, um, you know, they come in when they can. They, whoever's there, they'll, you know, try to take care of it. When they run out of medication and they're not at a place where they can get care, they just stop taking it. Mm-hmm. And then they come in to see you and they're, blood pressure or blood sugar is terrible because they've been off their meds so you don't really even know what whether it was effective when they were on those meds Mm -hmm. 
I think we're starting to get people a little more knowledgeable about that. But again, it takes that education that you were talking about earlier with what are the side effects, I mean, what are the long-term effects of hypertension untreated or diabetes. Many of them have relatives who are on dialysis, which I often refer to, you know, you know, probably know somebody who lost a leg or something, you know, and that always kind of rings a bell and Mm -hmm. hits home for for people. But, um, you know, they're also very productive people that use their bodies and they feel fine most of the time. So why would I take medicine? You know, they're not a lot. I, I've found people not to be that crazy about taking medication, sure. most of them. Did you ever see, like, was you, the visit with your your guys' clinic, was that basically the only time that they would come in for any sort of prescription or refill on medication? Um, did you find that basically this was almost like a one-stop shop for a, a, a long yes. length of time for them? Yes. How long are we kind of talking about? Like on, on a, for a year? Are we talking about like a few months? Where are we? You mean the distance between visits? Yeah, distance yeah. between visits be, for mm-hmm. any provider for them to, to get these medications. Well, like one guy I saw last night who had, you know, the metabolic syndrome, whole, you know, diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and... Um, there was something else, but I don't remember what it was. He oh, oh he had fungus on his feet, which is why he came in. Oh, that was <laughs> the reason the why. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, okay. But um, you know a lot of and I was and it had been a year, and mm-hmm. I was like, well, you're going down, you're going to somebody in Texas, right? And he said, no, I just go down to Mexico and get my medications. Mm-hmm which is another thing that people do a lot of, and they can also, they can buy stuff over the counter there, and they know what medicines they need. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's good in a way, but it's also not that great because then maybe they're not getting the, the check that they need, the checkups. Yep. yep. And Aaron, did you, did you see something similar where most of the patients that you interacted with, this was really the only time that they were going to see any sort of provider for, for the year? Yes, I will say that for some of the patients, I mean, we'd schedule follow-up visits for them depending on, um, you know, what they were coming in for. If they had really bad hypertension, we'd say, you know, we want to see you back here. We want to make sure that this is being managed. And, you know, some of them would come back Mm -hmm. um, and did understand the importance of that. Um, But as Peg said, sometimes maybe that is the only time we would see them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Until and some f- fungus came back. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I will say that uh, the one thing that we often ran in with was we we tried to stress at the end of every appointment that uh, for our patients, we tried to stress to them, we need you to come back in four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, depending on how, whenever their medication ran out. And we always told them, come back before your medication runs out. And they would tell us, yep. Absolutely. We will, we will definitely do that. And for somebody that say had medications for six weeks, it was more often the norm that we, we wouldn't see them until about eight or 10. And even then we would ask them and say, did you, when was the last time you took your medication? Oh, this morning. And to be honest with you, most of them were being honest, but they, they knew for a fact that they weren't going to be able to come in either at that time, mm, either due right. to work right. or so they would actually save their last, yeah. pe- their last medication for whatever it was, their last dose mm. until the morning <laughs> of. Or take a half, half a dose, you know, stretch it out over a period of time because yep. 
Because I think when you think about it, if you're moving around a lot, you know, you don't really know where you're going to be the next time. If there is going to be a place where you can get care, you know, some of these folks go from Michigan where they're, you know, doing something there, picking beets or something, and then they come to Iowa and then they, or they go to Indiana or um, it's, it's um nomadic kind mm-hmm. of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you were asking about health literacy in a way. And, and I think, I think it's actually getting a lot better, especially with younger folks. And um, the more that we are talking and trying to educate about things. Um, but I think the limitations are some of those things that I mentioned about moving around a lot. Um, because of lack of access, they prioritize their like, you know, there's a really low priority as far as dental care, cancer screening, like colon cancer screening. I can hardly ever get people to mm-hmm. do that because there's no place to send them mm-hmm. for colonoscopy, mm-hmm. you know. And we see quite a few people over 50 who, you know, I really wish we could do that for them, but we can't. Yeah. And then the effects of poverty on poor living conditions and less, less access to healthy food or even places to exercise, you know, I mean, some of their jobs involve physical activity, but not necessarily, you know, aerobic or, you know, activity that would help you with those conditions that you need. Absolutely. So um, what I will do is I'll, I'll ask a kind of a final question. Um, and Aaron, you're, you're going to be able to answer this better, but I will say, um, Peg, feel free to talk about maybe some of the, the students that you've worked with with this specific subject. Uh, Aaron, how do you feel that the school here, the Carver College of Medicine, has addressed maybe working with this population within the educational structure that we have, and maybe uh, talk about, is there anything in particular that you would like to see done or improved within our educational structure working with this population? Yeah, um, just in our general classes, I wouldn't say that we were educated about this specific population, but I think they're doing a really good job at talking about getting us to think about the social determinants of health and um, structural inequalities and um, how we can try to navigate through that to see the actual patient as opposed to a a disease process. a patient is more than their symptoms Mm -hmm. and um, it's really important to get a better idea of where they come from who they are what their experiences are what their beliefs are in order to be able to better treat them Um, and so I I really enjoy that they're bringing that into our curriculum especially with our medicine and society class Mm -hmm. Um, but I think we could manage to call attention to specific populations a little bit more I will say that um, I did the reason I found out about Proteus was because we had global health seminars that um, uh, we could choose to go to or sign up for that class. And um, that's how I first found out about it and then decided I wanted to work there. So um, it is being talked about, but not necessarily specifically within our classes at the moment. And so I think maybe that's something we could change because it is relevant to I would say I would absolutely agree. I think there's pockets of, of students here that understand those sorts of issues, but I also feel that there are definitely instances where when we think about underserved populations, our, our, our minds tend to almost automatically go to internationally, um, internationally based issues, um, which is awesome in and of itself. I mean, that there's definitely nothing wrong with that, but I don't think people quite understand that 25 miles down the road, you can find people that are dealing with 
same or similar issues that um, somebody in a different country is. And so I think um, specifically with this population, it would be it would be nice to be able to kind of provide a little more concrete evidence of maybe some of the people that you'll run into when you are working in your clinicals, when you're specifically going out into the community-based programs. Um, because at this moment, we're it's important to understand what the majority of the people that you'll see, but it's also important to understand those people that aren't necessarily part of that majority. And so um, I think it would be, it would be wonderful to be able to see a little more concrete uh, uh, structuring of that sort of uh, of those people worked into what we do. So I definitely agree with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, first off, uh, that'll, that'll finish up our episode. I really honestly want to thank both, uh, you Peg and you Aaron for coming to do this. Um, I hope you had fun with this. It was yeah. fun. Okay. I enjoyed Thank it. Good. I didn't think I was going to enjoy it. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad we didn't scare you well, off. Wait a minute. <laughs> what were you thinking? Because I was too nervous. Uh, okay. You guys did a great job mm -hmm. of putting me at ease. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> of course. And uh, Dave, thanks for saying yes Dave, to this. No problem. And for being super flexible with all the different sorts of little questions I kept emailing you about. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about all that pestering. No, so, no, no. It's what I'm here for. Yes. And that is our show. Guys, thank you so much for hanging out with me. And thank you, listeners, for making us a part of your week. If you like what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes, just like the Doc7 did. Thank you, Doc7. Or you can talk about it or just about anything else you'd like in our Facebook group, the Short Coats Student Lounge. Use it as a place to share questions with us, ideas, resources, recommendations, and memes or whatever. If you like what you, um, if you like, you can also send those things to the shortcoats at gmail.com or leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. The show is made possible by a generous donation by the Carver College of Medicine Student Government and the Writing and Humanities Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox. And the closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you guys in one week.